What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Whiskey Web and Whatnot with your hosts, Robbie the Wagner and Charles William Carpenter III, with our guests today, Andrew and Justin from the Dev Tools FM podcast. What's going on, guys? Hey, hey. How's Nothing it much. Uh, good day today. We had a nice 8 a.m. recording to start off. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> got to do what you got to do. Uh, it's a little fair. bit easier for me being on the East Coast, so it was more like lunchtime. Ah, I see, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's not too yeah. bad then. I almost have like the opposite thing because I'm on the West Coast time, I'm in Arizona, and so we try to do about 5 o'clock Robbie's time, which means I start drinking around 2 this time of year. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was going to do that. that anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, who knows. So yeah, um, if anyone has not heard of you guys or your podcast, do you want to give quick intros into who you are and what you do? Yeah, so we host DevTools FM. DevTools FM is a podcast about developer tools and the people who make them. We try to interview people who, like a range of people from like small DevTools people, just like random NPM packages you might find around, to like people that are like just at the edges of computing in their respective fields and trying to like break things down. So like we've talk to people like Jared Sumner from Bun, uh, but we've also talked to people like Anthony Fu, who is just like a prolific open source maintainer. So like we try to talk to a lot of people that are like the foundation of modern computing and don't usually get into the limelight. Nice. Yeah, it's also fun just to talk to folks who are pretty early in the journey or working on something that's like relatively niche. So we kind of use it for an outlet sometimes too, to just like, hey, this person's working on something cool. We should talk to them. So an example of this is we talked to uh, one of our early episodes was with Paul Shen, and he works on this thing called NATO.dev, which is a sort of nodal programming environment where you can like have these little code blocks and connect them uh, with lines or whatever. It, I don't know. It's a really cool project, but it's not something you typically think of like, oh, this is a, a standard dev tool, you know, but it's fun to sort of do those crossovers too. And it's a way for you to get like a live intro into some of these tools too. You're like, what is whatever? and uh, just have them on they'll tell you yeah. yeah it's it's definitely been a forcing function for me to just like learn about a, a lot of new things because it's like it's hard to go into some of these podcasts without knowing anything about it one of the episodes that has stuck with me the longest is our conversation with runar uh, of unison and unison is like it's a crazy programming language. Like they uh, bill it as the programming language from the future. And that means like it has like six different concepts that are all kind of like mind breaking and just trying to wrap your head around those it, it, during the episode, very hard. So I have to do like a lot of preparation to be like, okay, like what is this thing we're talking about? Like why, why would I want a content addressable code? Like things like that. Hmm. Interesting. Why would I want content addressable code? Not that we need to go down that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I need some whiskey I for Zig that. was going to be. Yeah, I, I think uh, I thought Zig was going to be the language of the future. Now you have me wondering. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of whiskey, we'll go down that path. Get started with that today. We're having the Great Jones Straight Bourbon Whiskey from New York. I know it said like uh, the ingredients are grown in New York, so that's kind of cool. Uh, Four-year age statement, eighty-six proof, so not super hot. Uh, don't get to know the mash bill breakdown, but we know it has corn because it has to to be called bourbon. At least 51% and then barley and rye. Yeah, so we'll see. It's the first I heard of this one. Yeah, it was an interesting shipping journey because clearly it's made in New York. The company mm -hmm. we ordered it from, also in New York, but I think like couldn't get it. Like it took them a while to get it shipped there somehow. <laughs> I don't understand, yeah. but oh. yeah. 
It has a very medicinal look to the bottle for me. It reminds me of like the look of ones that were still produced during Prohibition because they were yeah. whiskey for medicinal purposes. There's mm -hmm. like only so it's many like that were Gatsby able to do that. Style. Yeah, yeah, it's got that deco look on the mm -hmm. label, so I like that. It's kind of cool. Let's see here. Batch number one. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Bottle 79,000 wow, okay. something. Wow. Okay. It smells like cherries to me. Mmm. I do not have a, such a refined nose. <laughs> mm. You know, you know, you've bought it. I, I love it because we are completely full of shit. We also don't know what we're talking about. But if you use words, descriptive words, people tend to be like, oh, yes, uh-huh. I'm getting some notes of uh, Wrigley's chewing gum. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I went to a, a fancy dinner with my uh, now fiance and we got the wine pairings. And the thing that stuck with me the most from that dinner is he described one of the wines as uh, tasting like a barnyard haystack. And just every time I get a wine, that's how I, how I describe it now. <laughs> Hopefully a clean haystack. Uh, yeah. I don't know. The, you know the question here is, is right? was it good? Uh, it definitely tasted like hay. Uh, I'm not much of an alcohol drinker, so it might have been good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's fair. Um, yeah, I get a lot of cinnamon on this one, actually. I, I smelled a little fruity. It smelled like nutmeg to me, but now that I'm tasting it, it definitely has a, like, cinnamony forwardness to it. Oh, yeah. Like a spice sangria. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, so an earthiness in there. Maybe even a little, like, baker's chocolate. You know, that bitterness that is in, like, baker's chocolate. Yeah. Because I smelled, like, some sweetness there. But I think now that I taste it, it actually has a little more bitter. Not that I'm saying it's bad, but it's definitely punching above its weight in terms of like the burn too, because I would think under 90 proof normally has a softer kind of a uh, feel in the mouth and not so much burn, but this is actually, I think it might be the ride giving me some burn. Mm -hmm. You can make up words and sound good. I tell you, <laughs> I, I'm telling you, whatever always, it tastes like to you is, is right. Yep. I always love listening to connoisseurs just or, or people who just like are into something talk about the aspects that they see and and you know it's funny because any refined taste like in any hobby or any like pursuit you you find the same sort of thing so it's like some folks can talk about tech in a way that's like very granular and very detailed and like you know color a perspective in a way that you're like okay but that's just like a framework i don't see all these things that you're talking about or <laughs> you know food or coffee or whiskey or whatever you know, it is interesting just to, I don't know. I think the passion always spills out and that's always fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I dig that. Yeah. A lot of, there's plenty of coffee drinkers that can pull a bunch of those similar like flavor notes and nuances out whiskey drinkers. And then Andrew, you were mentioning doing like a food pairing <laughs> there. You can do food and whiskey pairings and stuff too. Just like, uh, Oh yeah. There's whole like sites and blogs around that of like good things to pair different whiskeys with like little uh, hors d'oeuvres or whatever. So here's a question for you. How do you right. develop good taste? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, good is relative, think, right? So yeah, yeah, good is relative, right? <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I know what I like. I don't know what you like, right? I do know different things that like 10, like in the whiskey world, I'm sure you're like being specific to that. And I know ones that, tend to like anybody who's at least interested in alcohol or interested in whiskey i can make recommendations of like well everybody tends to kind of like a b or c 
and that's okay and that's a direction you can kind of explore but then things deeper beyond that i mean obviously one facet of it is try a lot of different things this podcast has given us a vehicle to do that but uh, yeah it would just be like years of drinking and trying different things and getting into uh what you like and what you don't like and then also going and do like distillery experiences i think that kind of helps like drive knowledge a little more being around folks that have been in it for a little longer too and they start to give you more of a vocabulary to speak about and then you can use that when you go to like the liquor store i want to try a, a different rye and i liked this one and it had notes like this for me and then they can kind of lead you to so really just just like with engineering right yeah the more exposure you have um the more experience you have you know the things that you like to work with and don't like to work with and and what you're looking for in tooling i mean i would say it's just like that yeah yeah i would say it's it's very similar to like becoming a senior engineer you don't just like go oh let me do these five things and i'll be a senior engineer you have to kind of like feel it and know like oh yeah okay i understand what i'm doing now um the yeah. same with whiskey like you know it'll just hit you eventually and you'll be like wait i know like this and that about whiskey and like what i like and what i don't like and how to pick ones that i would like now like i didn't feel like i learned that but somehow i know that so yeah so now we're going to introduce you to the highly complicated and nuanced scale of whiskey that uh, we use on the show it's a zero through eight tentacles zero being this is horrible i don't want it anymore four being yeah this is fine you know it, it's not great it's not bad and then eight being like this is amazing i'm never going to drink anything else again get rid of water Probably not that strongly. We tend to like categorize them together by a whiskey type, but it can really just be like out of alcohol that I've had. This is how I feel about it. So, and Rob is going to go first and show you how it's done. Yeah, I don't love this one. I don't know exactly why. <laughs> There's like some kind of bitterness, maybe like the baker's chocolate you were talking about, that's like hits me at the end. So I don't like that finish. Like the flavors until the finish are pretty good, but because that finish is harsh, I'm going to give it a four. Justin, Andrew, do either of you feel confidence around your own personal rating here? I think I agree with a four. It's it's nothing to write home about, and like did knock knock my sto socks off. I don't, I don't think I'm a whiskey convert, but I I wouldn't just throw it down the toilet. That's fair. You could at least use this in a cocktail yeah. or something fun. I've had some other whiskeys. Uh, I'm no by no means a whiskey connoisseur, and I've definitely had whiskeys that I've liked less than this. That either the flavor profile just wasn't right for me, or they like were a little too strong. But I feel like this strikes a decent balance for my palate. So again, not my favorite alcohol, maybe, but I would say maybe a five. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. So in the bourbon range of things. I think flavor-wise, like, I was expecting some things out of the package. I was like, this is all kind of hitting well for me, visually. But uh, it's not blowing me away in any way. And then there are certain flavors that I'm like, eh, I'm not loving it. And then I don't recall what this one costs. I, I kind of take cost into account, too. Like, if you're going to charge me $50, $60, $70 for a bottle of whiskey, like, it better be a lot better than the $25 Buffalo Trace that, or Maker's Mark that you can go to the grocery store and get or whatever. So to me, those are more like baselines to look against. So I, it probably is a four for me. It's like, yeah, it's not bad. It's not my favorite. And for 25 bucks, I can get better stuff. So four is probably as fair as I can get. 
what is your favorite right. uh, whiskey? Like, what what would be like the best thing for me to try and like kind of set a, a stage for my whiskey palate? Well, as a senior engineer, I'll tell you it depends. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, well, what? Okay, you like wine, I guess at least. Right? Uh, I'm I'm more yeah. of a pot man myself, uh, but <laughs> okay. I I, I, dab I dabble in uh, things I can drink too. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So fair enough. Kind of different the same but different um <laughs> but i was just trying to like see if you are gonna have like go have a cocktail or yeah. go have a, a drink what do you what do you choose normally since i'm not like an alcohol person i just read the description and the description that speaks to me i i guess i kind of like tequila -y things uh but okay very few opinions okay <laughs> Right, right. I don't know. I feel like then maybe some of the like Maker's Mark is an easier whiskey to mm. choose because it's weeded, which means it not only has corn in there to add sweetness, but then the wheat will kind of mellow out any rye or whatever else that's in the mash bill. So it's it's kind of a good, easy to get, reasonably priced one that I would suggest to many people. And then you can make a simple cocktail out of that because my guess is drinking straight liquor also not high on your list yeah i had to had to order this glass off of amazon because we didn't have any, any anything <laughs> like this <laughs> yeah yeah so like you know something like that and then making you know even like a whiskey sour mm. or something like that to balance the notes out a little for you again not to have like too much alcohol burn you probably would want some sugar or some kind of sweet flavor mm. there and that's a pretty simple one to make the ingredients yourself too uh, maker's mark go makers and if you yeah. find yourself in Loretto, Kentucky, which I'm going to guess may or may not happen. Anyway, it's a very beautiful property. It's like out in the hills of Kentucky. It's like this old farmhouse kind of look and it's just like a really pretty place to go. And you can do the whole dip your own bottle thing too. They actually have some Chihuly art installation in the Rick House there. So it's kind of cool. Fun facts for y'all. All right. Well, we can move on from drinks. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, we'll probably move into hot takes. We yeah. at least got to cover our hot takes. I can't. We know, should make them. Can't share them. We should rename it lukewarm takes officially, <laughs> because they're not that hot. But let's do it either way. First one: inferred types or explicit types <laughs> for TypeScript. Senior engineer, it depends. Uh, most of the time, <laughs> just know. use inferred. But if the inferred type that you get is just like garbage, just just add a, add a strict type. I usually as it instead of doing the return type up top because they're so far away from each other. But yeah, infer it yeah. all the way. Nice yeah. typecasting for the win. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I'm definitely of the view that every piece of code you write is more to maintain. And like, I try to think about the value of anything that I add. So if I'm adding an explicit type, what am I trying to communicate? Usually if I'm adding an explicit type over an inferred type, I am trying to either really make the shape of something solid and known so that it's maybe, you know, if it's like a return of a function, it's like this is the thing that I expect to return, right? I don't want to rely on what is inferred is like this is what I expect. And if it deviates from that, then I want to know about it. And as much as possible, though, I try to lean into inferred just because, you know, less lines of code, less things you write, generally is my preference. Yeah, the best TypeScript to me is one where you're not writing types. So like builder pattern style APIs, like if I can just write JavaScript and it's strictly typed, that's the API that I want. I don't wanna have to add more types. It should kind of be invisible in my opinion. 
Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Get rebase or get merge. I have a pick. Yeah, you go first, Justin. <laughs> Perfect. I, I, I'm all for merge. There's Whoa. some folks who say mm. that it makes your history, you know, messier or whatever, but I think it's a simpler mental model overall. It's not as easy to screw up, in my opinion. I, I found that over time, especially working with like different levels of experienced people, it is easier for me to walk through some somebody through a git merge than it is from a git rebase. And also just like folks who care a lot about git history, it like varies organization to organization. So I mean, my, my main answer to this is like, do what the organization does. If folks are rebasing, then rebase. But if it's just like, hey, we don't really know what to do, then I'm going to say stick with merge. Yeah, I mean, it does add a ton of complexity mm -hmm. for sure going the merge route, which is probably why early in my career when I was using uh, switched over to get from subversion, like merge was like just made sense in that context. But then I was in an organization where you get browbeaten enough about not doing that, you know, and learn rebase, read the fucking manual, <laughs> you know, all that fun stuff that used to be more pervasive in our, in our industry. So then I've kind of been like, I have the scars. Everybody rebases now. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I say. I had to fight for this. You think I'm letting go? No way. Yeah. In my opinion, uh, if it's a few commits, I'll rebase just to like, keep it like simple. Like I like, I tend to use Git UIs that are very visual and show you like the graph. So like visually, it's just a little more pleasing to see like, oh, my commits are in this clean state. But if it ever gets to a point where I have to like resolve multiple conflicts across a rebase, merge and get on with my day. The, the real question to me is when you merge into your repo, do you prefer to just merge it or do you squash and merge? And when I got to my current company, we, were, we squash and merge, which I think it's the battle. Do you want a perfectly clean Git history where you can visit each commit and all tests pass and the app is in a perfect state? Or do you actually want to preserve the context of every change in your repo? And I tend to want to preserve the context because like, sure, I can rebase back to a PR, but if I get to that PR and it's the PR where I changed a thousand things, all the granularity of what I was changing is lost. And then I have to sift through one huge like squash down commit. And I, I'm much more for like, let the history be useful. Merge commits are there for a reason. Yeah, I think my argument to that would be you shouldn't have a PR that has a thousand things. <laughs> true, like true. That's the, the solution to the, the squash and merge debate. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> Plus, I'm all, I'm I'll do some garbage commits that could be for various reasons. Either oh, yeah. like, most of the time it's all right. I just want to save where I'm at and kind of come back to this fresh later. Here's some shit, you know, whatever. And especially if you're in organizations that have like pre-commit hooks or mm -hmm. post-commit hooks, or they're looking for a conventional commit style messages mm -hmm. and will force things out and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. That even adds another layer of overhead where I've got to like be extra clean locally mm -hmm. while my work in progress is happening. And I find that kind of annoying. Yeah. I think you should be able to do whatever you want locally. All the things should be enforced CI side. Cause I hate when I'm like, let me commit this. And it's like, no, no, no. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it French? <laughs> well, is your machine French <laughs> talking to you? No, no, no. I don't know. I am Pepe Le Pew. You're anyway. Yeah. I never agree with the know. CI stuff, but like there are valid use cases for like having a lot of changes in one commit. 
say you're developing a long-lived feature branch and you have multiple people committing to that feature branch via PRs into the branch. If I merge that into main and lose all that information, like sure, it might be a thousand different changes, but they could actually have a thousand different PRs attached to them. So like keeping history is just always better in my mind, but yeah. I am definitely of the mind, do not enforce my commits locally. I've literally not made contributions to projects that use things like commit as in, cause like I'd spent 10 minutes trying to commit mm. and it just didn't let me. And I'm like, well, I guess my time is better spent elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's, That's funny. Fair. A spicier take on this. I don't actually think Git is good. It is a utility and it is good enough for most cases, but like the UX for Git is not good. And the reason why I say it's not good is because I have had to mentor many, many, many people. And I have had the same comment over and over again. It's like, well, that's complicated. Don't worry about it right now. You'll figure it out later. <laughs> and the amount of times that I've had to pair with someone, they're like, I screwed something up. Oh God, I don't know what to do or whatever. It's like, of course there's documentation out of there, but these are not signs of a good tool and, and no shade on Git from like a holistic perspective, because like I said, it is good enough. It does a lot. It really has brought us forward, but I think there is space for innovation here, especially from like the UX perspective. So uh, what you're saying is go register a domain name as quick as possible because the appetite for improved DX in developer tools has grown quite a lot in the last yeah. few years, I would say. So like, Anything you want to go write in Rust to make things faster for developers, there are people interested in that. In that. Unfortunately, so that that's was, a hard one. That's a really hard problem. To oh, solve. for sure. For sure. But yeah. uh, I'm sure someone smarter than me could figure it out if they really... You just got to get stuck in the right places and then someone gets inspired. Is uh, This is another Twitter tech Twitter thing, which is saying that there's a knowledge gap when folks are learning web development or just, you know coding in general, that Git isn't a part of that, right? Git isn't part of CS oh, programs yeah. and Git isn't part of boot camps, really. It's always just whatever you need to learn to get through that module yeah. specifically. So there's no learning of that tool, really. Yeah. It, well, it's kind of the problem with CS degrees in general, though, is that any modern tooling, even if modern means a 26-year-old tool, <laughs> like that stuff's just not taught in school. Like. I, I wish I had known the value of of Git before I got into the professional world. J just the ability to go, it was okay yesterday, it's fucked up today, what changed? And like, know what changed? <laughs> that is a crazy, yeah. crazy great power to have. And not, just not doing that for so long, I got myself into so many bad situations because of that. You basically learn Git by like, screwing something yep. up. <laughs> And mm -hmm. then you have to figure yep. out, how do I fix this? Yeah. You and don't, then when you fix it, you hopefully don't rebase, uh, rewrite a ton of history, break everything, and then force push it up. And then force <laughs> push it. Yeah, I was going to say, there's the big thing. Force push. Don't yeah. force. Force with lease if you ever do yeah. that. That's it. Learning to run on broken glass, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's a good analogy. All yeah. right. I do think subversion was better. But GitHub mm. killed that because you got to use GitHub. I'm not I mean, sure it I agree with that necessarily. Like Mercurial had a good start, you know, and I think the the sort of DX for Mercurial was was better. Their commands made a little bit more sense, but even that was still not a <sighs> problematic in, in its own unique ways. Um, yeah, per four should have won. I just honestly think 
Well, I, don't <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Perforce. Perforce. Uh, I had to use Perforce <laughs> when I first started, and that has its own unique problems. <laughs> so you know what's wrong. You can make the thing that's right. Uh, Tailwind or vanilla CSS? It depends. <laughs> I, I, I like Tailwind a lot, personally. It's really fast. Like... A lot of people are like, oh, you shouldn't learn this before you learn CSS. And I kind of like disagree. Like the Tailwind docs are better than the CSS docs. Like you can go to the Tailwind site and learn all about what display block is in like human readable terms. So like to say that it's bad for learning CSS, I would say is wrong. The real question is, do you like utility CSS at all? And I, I really tend to like it. My answer isn't as simple as like never use like CSS modules or anything. I think uh, utility CSS is great at being a utility. So what I mean by that is for the design system I built for Descript, like there's the design system and then there is also utility CSS and you use the utility CSS to lay out the components. Cause like when, when you're building a, a design system, I think like certain things a component shouldn't care about, like width and margin and how I'm placed within my parent, that should all be on the parent. And being able to use just like utility CSS classes like flex, item center, justify, whatever. Like the DX there is just like so nice. But like, I, w I wouldn't say never use CSS because like, frankly, some things are a lot easier to write in CSS than they are in Tailwind. Your answer kind of makes me think it's very much akin to the whole, you really shouldn't learn React, you should learn JavaScript. And then yeah. figure out how, th you know, that applies. Yeah, depends on what you want to do. Well, right. Like, so conversely, obviously, they both can be tools that make you more productive than zero, mm -hmm. right? So there's that positive aspect to it. So it's like, are you trying to just build a site and figure out how to build a site? Well, Tailwind will help you do that. Yeah. React will help you do that. Yeah. Yeah. A person we recently had on the podcast, uh, Eden Bai, he mm. interestingly learned React in a very backwards way. He built out his own, all his own, like, vanilla javascript stuff and then got to the point where he was like oh god updating the dom takes so long and then he discovered the vdom and then he discovered react so like he worked yeah. his way up <laughs> but like i don't think that path is really an easy path for anybody to take to throw a, a newbie dev into like what web development is and all of the hard edges of the native apis it is a little easier to throw them into something like react where you're like hey you can go take this course and this course will teach you all you all you need to know about learning React, and then you can like branch out once you have something you know and like can put stuff on a page easily. Definitely, there's the happy fast path, and then there's the happy know what you're doing long term yeah. path. Yeah. Also, uh, um, Aiden Bai, he's the million JS yep. mm -hmm. yep. person. Yeah, I mean, I think he's one kind of like Jared Sumner, where like yeah. there's some really unique engineers out there yeah. who can take some special paths, right? He's and, an 18. Yeah. He just went yeah, to college. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, right, right. And uh, I was going to say, at 18, you know why I know so much about whiskey? is because at 18, I was having all of it <laughs> around me, everywhere. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we took very different paths. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's amazing how many of those people that we met through the podcast, where it's like, this guy just locked himself in a room for 100 hours every week for the past year and came out with this thing. And it's just crazy the things that come out of that. Like on Twitter, I recently saw this new Braid browser, which is a collaborative browser. Like he said, he saw Figma and was like, why doesn't the browser just do that? So he rewrote a browser by looking at reading all of Chromium 
and rewriting the browser so it could be like collaborative first. <laughs> and that, yeah, you can't do that just like, piddling on a side project for two, three hours no. <laughs> every few days. That just doesn't <laughs> no, work. No, You also can't do that with two small kids. My life is over, yeah. so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, my, my innovation is this podcast. <laughs> anyway, innovation, speaking of, or a regression of innovation, it's kind of how you think about it. What do you think about builds or no builds <laughs> for web apps? I think that depends on what you're doing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, not to be cliche with this, but... There is a, a tremendous value in iteration speed. So if you're using a build, you should be cognizant of its performance and its impact on the engineers who are developing features. As someone who has introduced slow builds to an organization unintentionally, I, I know the pain and the, the, the cost of that. So if you can get away with a no build setup that meets your criteria of like performance, delivers the feature sets you want, if it matches the organization coding style that you're going for, then do it, of course. Anything that you can take out and still move on without too much pain and is, is worth it. But the real caveat here is that builds are valuable. Like we do them because they give us features and functionality that we need in some way. If you ask me, do I give the users a better experience or do I give our developers a better experience? It's going to be the users every time. I mean, because at the end of the day, if you're building a product, you like need to build a product in such a way that your users have a delightful experience, hopefully, <laughs> you know? And if that means introducing a build so you can eke out some more extra performance or, you know, do whatever, then it's worth it. And then arguably sometimes for, for DX, it's like, hey, you know, introducing TypeScript, depending on your runtime or whatever, might require some building, but usually it's worth it, you know, so. Yeah, and if the user gets a, you know, reduction in the number of artifacts per release cycle, blah, 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 you know, there's a, there's ways to package yeah. that to have, you know, front benefit too. I don't know, we're all going to be writing Rails <laughs> again in the next five years. Just, yeah. Why not just, PHP? You know. I'm hoping for Elixir, <laughs> honestly, myself. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Elixir with types, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Elixir Phoenix kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It looked cool. Yeah. Pe people hate their bundlers for the most part. Like a lot of people don't like Webpack, but I think Webpack can do a lot of really cool things. Configuring it, yes, can be a drag and learning like how all of that fits together. But like if you learn to master that, you can do some really cool things. Like if you look at mo module federation, let's see you module federate in an app without a bundler. You really can't, like you don't want to. And the beautiful part about module federation, I'll give a little short explainer of what it is, is say you have a big app like Lululemon and you have a whole bunch of teams. With module federation, you can split up your app into little micro apps and then module federation is a layer within Webpack that allows you to import your micro apps just like normal code. You can have a team manage the navbar UI, but in code, uh, you only have to import the navbar UI, but it could be somewhere else. It could have its own deploy step. It could have its own CI, all of that. And all of it's enabled by Webpack doing really cool things. Like from a DX perspective, all you have to do is configure Webpack to do this thing. And now your imports can magically resolve from remote URLs. You can change those while it's running. So like all of that stuff's not like you could build that in user land, but you would never want to build that and maintain that. And the fact that you can use a tool and just configure it a little bit differently and get this like new capability out is, I think, really cool. But that's a that's a build time tool, right? That's not runtime. No, it's run, run, it's runtime. 
So hmm. module federation basically like hacks the loader. So it makes like a loader that can load from remote things. So what you could do for your like Lululemon micro app architecture that has, let's say, a hundred different apps, you could have literally a JSON file on your backend that says, okay, navbar points to version one. This editor part of the app points to version two. While people are running the app, uh, they get those things. Then you go, oh shit, our editor needs to roll back one version. You just change that file. The next time someone requests that module, module federation goes, oh, there's a new one. Let's go get that one and put it in the module graph. Without doing any builds, you can actually redeploy different parts of your website. That guy, Zach Jackson, has a like backend counterpart guy who's like module federation on the backend. And that area is even like crazier. Like he was like, yeah, you can just have like one Lambda. The Lambda kind of runs Webpack. And then you can request things of that Lambda and dynamically that Lambda can go, oh, you want me to go do this thing. I'll go fetch the code for that, run it for you, have it primed for the next person and still just be one Lambda doing N amount of things. Microservices as a yeah. monolith. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, basically, right? That's, a, that's very interesting. Yeah. I'll have to listen to that episode of yours. Yeah, his work is very interesting. He just uh, left Lululemon actually to go work at ByteDance because ByteDance is doing like a crazy amount of cool developer tool things right now. And it like, I, mm -hmm. I can't blame him. Like RS Pack, I honestly think if there's a, a future for Webpack, it's RS Pack. So you're saying Bun isn't going to replace it all? If Dino hasn't replaced it all yet, then Bun's not going to do it very quickly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right, there you go. I, I, we talk about Bun a lot, and I like how Bun is like pushing the field forward and kind of like lighting a fire under other people to be like, hey, we could have really cool DX. We could have really fast tools. And it's making other people go, yeah, yeah we probably could. And then like looking at things and making them better. Like I just saw a PR land in PMPM where the guy was like, oh, I noticed that Bun was doing this thing to make things fast. So I did it too. As, it, <laughs> as, as Justin yeah. likes to say, he said on a bunch of episode episodes, uh, a rising tide lifts all ships. So like someone doing better is going to make other people do better and it's only good. But do I think Bun will take over? It's a long shot. They want to do a lot of things. <laughs> they do want to do a lot yeah. of things. It's VC backed yeah. though. So there's, you know, they've got some engine behind that. And I know their intentions are to get into hardware. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah. The VC back thing's a blessing and a curse, though, because it's right. like platform. We actually had in the episode we recorded today, we had this conversation. Platforms themselves are hard to monetize, mm -hmm. like code platforms, like yeah. you know, like Node or Dino or Bun. It's like those products by themselves are a lot of development effort, and they're hard to monetize. Yeah. Usually, it's the services around those that are monetizable. You know, there are VC pressures that exist that after a certain point, especially in this sort of macroeconomic environment, after a certain point, people are like. You got to make money. You yeah. you got to show us yeah. you're on the path to profitability or whatever. I don't know if you if you take if it takes tens of thousands of man hours to sort of produce this reliable, robust runtime, then you can really eat into your funding or whatever. And you know that's not to say that Bon or Dino or anybody else can't do it. Um, they definitely can, but it, it's just I don't think it's a given at any point. Yeah, no, I definitely don't think it's a given for sure, and. You know, to your point, Andrew, things like Bun and Dino have pushed Node yep. forward a bunch too, right? And Node is what we trust and runs all over the place. And there's been things that we've asked for there, and now we're getting mm -hmm. them. And then some, you know, who's to say that the old faithful won't just win out yeah. in the end? Yeah. Yeah. 
But the interesting part about Bun is we haven't seen the product yet. Like Bun is like the tech. They're still building the tech for their product. Like I think that the yeah. most illuminating uh, bit of our interview with Jared was where he was talking about the future and like this work is to enable cool things. He was like, what are the cool things yeah. we could enable if we had just like a lightning fast JavaScript thing? Like how could we build our applications differently? And I think that's where the val like the, the actual product of Bun will come. There's there's going to be a platform. It's going to be doing something special that enables JavaScript to be run in some new interesting way. We just haven't really seen it yet. In the meantime, the value add is pushing folks yeah. forward. So like the NPM compatibility in Dino was really motivated by Bun, like Bun coming out, <laughs> and they're like, okay, no, we can do this too. <laughs> and it's like, Why didn't we do know, this before? Oh my gosh. Yeah. That just the ecosystem of everybody pushing every everybody else to be forward. We've seen this in like the, the framework wars, right? It's just like, oh, well, we can do all these things. And the, the best frameworks, in my opinion, learn from what other folks are doing. So I was involved in the early days of Vue and I, I got to see like Evan would take ideas that came out as like, oh, React did this virtual DOM thing. We can do that too. Osfelt did like this incremental compilation, like only deliver what you need. It's like, we can do that too. The best tools over time take what the other folks are innovating on, they use those ideas and they continue to iterate and improve on them. And I mean, that is human innovation, right? That's that's how we are at our best. It's still good to see a lot of folks, you know, iterating in that space. It's also just hard because there are things like specs that are important and and Node takes those very seriously and it, and it slows Node down, but you can rely on the fact that like if Node implements a feature that's across the browser or Node, then it's going to work consistently how you would expect if you read the spec. Whereas like Bun, maybe they don't care. They're like, nope, this is our behavior. This is what we'll do. We'll make it possible to run ESM and CommonJS in the same file. And like, we don't care that that doesn't really meet the spec. And you just run into different bugs and like different issues. And, you know, for folks on that platform, maybe that's fine. Well, I think we might be a little remiss if we did, if we were only technical. And I know you guys want to have a, a shot at doing your format and your kind of thing. But I mean, we're all podcasters here, right? You said uh, you've been doing yours two years now? Yeah. I think we're coming up two and two a half years, years actually. Yeah. Nice. Time so flies. for other folks in the tech in the tech podcast space who don't get paid by Sentry, <laughs> what, what are some tips and tricks you would, you would give them? I've learned a lot about marketing while doing a podcast. I've had to be exposed to a lot of marketing tools. I'm shocked at how much they all cost, but it's a very big market. Uh, my biggest tip would just be like market the hell out of yourself. But I, I can't say that I, I always thirst for more success. So I don't know if I'm the best uh, <laughs> person to ask because I, I don't feel like we've gotten there, to be honest. Uh, we've built a great podcast. We have lots of listeners, uh, but by no means are we where I want to be. <laughs> we've learned some basic things. So for a while, we started marketing for an episode on Monday and we really released it on Friday. And I don't think we put too much thought into exactly why we were doing that. But folks would continually ask, it's like, oh, where's the episode? Can I listen to it? And then we changed it. It was like released on Monday and marketed it all week. And like, oh, suddenly this is so much better. So I mean, sometimes it's like, you know, little things like that, that maybe you don't put a lot of thought into that actually is is rather important beyond that i think sustainability is is really key in this so it's like find a format that you can work with when we first started doing this we were we first started weekly episodes 
and it like was really hard. Couldn't do it. <laughs> uh, because we're doing everything ourselves. Yeah. And then we went to bi-weekly. We're now back to weekly, but we have an editor that we pay. Oh, I was going to ask that because uh, I, yeah. I recall, Andrew, you saying like, I think you were putting in like four hours sometimes on editing yeah what yeah what i would do is like basically the week a podcast would come out i'd spend like basically two hours a day up until the podcast after work doing my things but now we have the editor and my role it like i still do a lot of editing but it's been able to free me up to do things in different order like i schedule all my like promotional posts the saturday before it all happens i was doing all that the day of that nice optimization we've been able to get out like long form clips because i have like a little bit extra time so i post those now too an editor definitely helped out a lot i'm going to plug my own product here uh, i work at descript and honestly the reason we started the podcast was because i started working at descript i announced it on twitter and then justin messaged me he was like hey do you do you want to start a podcast and i'm like uh I guess. And then I was I was like, okay, what what's a name we could go with? What's the only thing that I know that me and Justin share in common? Oh, DevTools. I devtools.fm idea. It was like it's crazy how fast we went from like no idea to idea, but Descript has been a big part of just us starting the podcast and us like doing the podcast. Like I use the podcast as a dog fooding exercise. So like I I didn't want an editor for a while because I was like just starting my my journey here at Descript and I wanted to be like in the product and like finding bugs and like learning it. So like just as a tool for that, it's been amazing. But it's also helped improve Descript in various ways. Nice. Yeah, I was kind of going to ask that is uh, from two years ago when you started the podcast to now, obviously Descript has also improved, mm -hmm. probably added features, evolved. You could pimp that out a little bit. Like you know, you're starting, you would recommend Descript or a tool mm -hmm. like it because it cut out ABC thing for you. If you're really low touch on your podcast, you could throw it into Descript. You could r remove all the like white spaces, add in a few templates for your intro, your outro, and then export it and be done with that and have like a transcript and a nice video within like 30 minutes. But of course, like there's, there's levels to that. I think the earliest feature I was proud of building here at Descript was one that like affected me instantly. Uh, when I joined Descript, we had just gotten into video. The video workflow is just like very lacking. So like we have a, a Riverside podcast also. So we have this like multi-file have to switch between speakers as they're on screen problem. And in Descript, before I joined, it was like five clicks to for one clip to change it for the person that was on screen. And when you have a, a timeline with lots of cuts, there'd be thousands of clips. So I would spend an hour, two hours going through and assigning the clips to the right people that were on the screen. Then I got fed up one weekend and I was just like, I'm just gonna code this. Now I'm, it's one of the most features I'm most proud of. People will write in constantly and be like, oh, I could cancel my subscription to this entire other service because you now do this one feature that I needed and it's just one click. Yeah, we are uh, excited for uh, all the things you're doing because we are going to not have editors at the end of the year and try it all ourselves. Nice. So we will play with that yeah. and give you feedback. Godspeed. <laughs> <Not speeding>. <laughs> <laughs> On that related note, so if anybody out there listening is thinking of starting a podcast, we've learned some basic things. So for a while, we started marketing for an episode on Monday and really, really sit on Friday. And I don't think we put too much thought into exactly why we were doing that. But 
folks would continually ask, it's like, oh, where's the episode? Can I listen to it? And then we changed it. It was like released on Monday and marketed it all week. And like, oh, suddenly this is so much better. So, I mean, sometimes it's like, you know, little things like that, that maybe you don't put a lot of thought into that actually is, is rather important. Beyond that, I think sustainability is is really key in this. Understanding your capacity for spending time on this sort of thing and how that affects your format, you should be very honest with yourself about that. So, you know, I am infinitely grateful for the work that Andrew does because I don't have the patience to sit down and do multiple hours of editing. And I, I tried a lot in the beginning and you know, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. So I would spend, you know, where it would take him a few hours, I would spend like six hours just going over the transcript or whatever. And it was hard for me to sort of let that go and just like do less. I don't know just how my mind works. And as I'm looking at, I'm like looking at spinning another podcast that I'm doing solo, I'm realizing that there are certain things that I can and can't do and, you know, leaning towards this idea of maybe more like live streaming where there's like minimal to no editing and then it just gets out like right as you record it is probably a better workflow for the style for me to be consistent with it, you know, because I love like meeting people and talking to people and stuff like this. But like the nuance of production is not something that I'm good at or interested in or whatever. And, you know, just being honest and upfront with yourself is like, what time do you have to give to something? Can you make this sustainable or whatever? And, you know, figuring out release cycles and everything else should really come from like, how much does this give me joy? How much capacity for production do I have? And just, you know, be really brutal and really honest with yourself about that. Cause that's like really key to making something successful. Yeah, I would say that's uh, that's very sound advice, and I look forward to your Twitch channel. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. live streaming it definitely takes a, a a certain individual for live streaming. Yeah. I feel like I need to be at least mildly edited, <laughs> not oh, frequently. Yeah, we can't let Chuck mildly. be live. It's uh, not <laughs> something we can do. Yeah, it's, uh, it's in my contract. My shipshape contract actually says I'm I'm not allowed to speak to he other humans live where it's publicly available. Yeah, th th there's been a few times yeah. where I'll say something and be like, oh, I'm, I want to edit that out. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I don't think I've said that personally, but I'm sure Robbie's been like, I got to get that out of mm -hmm. there. And then I don't listen to them i mm. mostly don't i don't want to hear my own voice anymore yeah I, I i was here i had this conversation i don't i don't need to hear it i'm sorry you have to hear it <laughs> but uh and so i don't listen later yeah yeah I went, to, I went on syntax fm and i felt the same way like i didn't even listen to the episode i was so nervous leading up to it and i was like oh that's that's all the nerves will be and then the episode like was recorded and i was like oh my god now i have to worry about it till it comes out <laughs> <laughs> yes and now it's out yeah. there and like Two years later, somebody's going to be like, oh, yeah, I heard your episode. Yeah, no, we've already had people come interview at Descript. We're like, oh, I heard his Syntax FM interview. It sounded like an interesting place to work. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm sure it is. So before we uh, kick it over to you guys for those uh, questions you wanted to ask and stuff, I have one question that I was curious about. You guys post a lot of text stuff and not a lot of whatnot on uh, your feeds. So, uh, well, I guess two questions here for you. One... How are the sales of the TypeScript metal hoodie? <laughs> Abysmal. Uh, yeah, no, our, our merch do doesn't Better sell. than everything else, but our merch doesn't turn. I, so. Off that design, I've made maybe like three or $400, but uh, I, I don't really care about the money there all that much. Like I, that, that I literally made 
just start a quarantine. I was like, I want this. And I went on Fiverr and like contracted a guy who did metal band logos. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> nice. Nice. And then we don't market awesome. merch in the same way. So we don't like turn a lot of merch. Yeah, that's fair. So, uh, yeah, the one other thing that we like to ask everybody is uh, if you weren't in tech, what other career would you choose? I would be a carpenter. And most of the time, I think I would work on mixed electronics, woodworking projects, mm. specifically lighting has always been something really interesting to me. So doing uh, like wooden chandeliers or, or standing lamps or stuff like that, I think that would be my jam. Mm. Uh, if it's a job that goes nowhere near a computer or an electronic, lately I've been thinking I'd want to be a butcher. Like I, I've entered the, oh, wow. like I turned 30 recently and I entered the phase of my life where I want to buy large chunks of meat and then cut them up for my own <laughs> consumption. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, that just got me thinking that like, hey, maybe a butcher would be fun. You just like, you, you learn this skill, you get really good at it and you get to eat steak all the time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's no downsides. Nice. And you know where... Yeah, you know how to get the best parts yeah. too. Yeah, the secret stakes. Yeah, man, the primogen kind of does that. He's does tech and also has big freezers of meat. So. <laughs> right. Well, one day, I'll have my big freezer one day. But but for now, yeah. I, I just buy uh, whatever's at the grocery store and cut it up for the next three weeks. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, right, I want to so uh, give you guys the floor. The time. Okay. So welcome to DevTools FM. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, both of you work at the same uh, like agency right or like consultancy you, you work at the same company well this is a complicated answer oh. that you were maybe <laughs> yeah. not ready for okay <laughs> it depends <laughs> um so yes yeah, so we had an agency for many years and uh then agency work stopped existing so i work for art 19 now which is a podcast hosting company ironically yeah so we we got real jobs and um stopped doing the agency work for now so mm. <laughs> right so agency exists minimally we both are w2s oh nice yep. so d uh did that agency spin out any open source repositories and do you still maintain those yeah yeah we still have a lot of open source um so yeah we the biggest one is shepherd we also have tether both were acquired kind of from hubspot um if you followed any of that before they had those two they it, like everything was based on tether originally and it was like drop shepherd uh, I think there was maybe another one I'm forgetting, but like several things based on the tether library where it's like where you could, you know, tie two Dom elements together. So yeah, we, we kind of took shepherd from that and like rewrote the whole thing. Cause there was no test coverage. So first wrote a bunch of tests and then like rewrote the whole thing in Svelte and yeah, did a lot of stuff there. Yeah. So it's the unimpinionated, uh, application tour library basically, cause it's really dumb and does all the things you tell you. You, you tell it. Yeah. And I know you like configuration. So. <laughs> you got me. So uh, this is one we like to ask uh, at the end of each episode now, or at least I do, since like there's been many a spicy dev take on Twitter rate lately. Uh, for each of you, what is your spiciest dev take? Mm, and I know okay. Robbie's got some real spicy yeah. ones. They've, they've gone off recently yes. on uh, the Twitter. <laughs> yes. I mean, my, my spiciest one, I like to be vague about it because it makes things more spicy. Like you just, I just tweeted react is a mistake or was a mistake. And like, everyone was like, oh my God, like losing their minds. And, uh, I was like, well, I'll explain it in each thread, but then no one reads the threads. So they're like, this guy doesn't explain anything and he just doesn't understand stuff and whatever. And I'm like, well, I explained it like 15 times already. If you go read it, in the other threads, but yeah, yeah. So I think react was 
originally a good idea for a little while. So there was a mistake. I will say I was wrong and just blanket saying that, right? But I think it has become a mistake is the more accurate thing is like hooks are really complicated. Like JSX has never looked good in my opinion. Like, yes, it's really powerful, but like it doesn't look good to me. And I think things like Vue and Ember and I'm less familiar with Angular these days, but like things with their own specific like templating language tend to like look a lot better and like feel nicer to me. So yeah, React being like, it's made us all like really over-engineer stuff. So it's like, you know, you've been like, oh, let me, how can I like manually do all these things and like get every ounce of performance out of it? And like, I'm, this is kind of a long-winded answer, sorry, but like Bun is kind of similar where it's like, oh, cool, like Bun took all of this work to do and it's like eight milliseconds faster or whatever. It's like, um, okay, yes, it's faster, but like, does it matter? Like, I think we're at the point where we have all the tools are pretty good and like you should use what has the best DX, in my opinion, versus like what you can over-engineer for two years building your own bespoke React project. Whereas you could just use Next.js. Like if you want to stay in the React ecosystem, use Next.js and you're done. Like if you want to, you know, use something that has not JSX, you use Nuxt, you use like whatever. So I think like the whole like thing that we entered into of everyone using hooks before there were any docs and then like just over-engineering the shit out of everything really affected us badly, I think, as a front-end community. And I think we need to take a step back and like use meta frameworks and tools to like have nice things, in my opinion. Well, wait until wait until you meet React server components. <laughs> I'm not gonna meet that. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I would I would argue that uh, React isn't necessarily the start of overcomplication. Having written a backbone marionette <laughs> app over a year plus, but uh, I would say it obviously made it more pervasive, and React became the jQuery of the yeah. DOM in yeah. a way. Uh, and then, of course, it, th I think that's actually where React differs. So, like a lot of this conversation has centered around web dev. The interesting thing about React is that it it's not web. React itself is a generic library. We're ta you're talking about React DOM. Uh, React itself, mm -hmm. the paradigms of React are transportable across spaces. You can go to native. You can build a native app if you know React. Literally just the other day, I saw React Native Apple Vision OS pop up on my feed. You can you can create <laughs> oh, wow. Apple Vision apps with React. So to say like React is complicated, but I don't think any other front end framework lets you take your knowledge to n platforms. They're all based on one platform. Yeah, I would say just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> <laughs> That's my spicy take. Then, yeah, but is but, yeah. Because that's the same argument saying like that, great, you're a full stack engineer across any platform because you know JavaScript and React. Um, you know the view okay. layer. Possibly. Right. Yeah, you do. But if you know JavaScript too, you can get down to the server side and start to write applications in that same way. So in, in the example that you said, I definitely, I don't know anything about that. So I'm making a blanket statement. But that are the implications the same as when I utilize that library in writing a web application versus writing something else on hardware versus I'm in mobile or I'm in this vision thing. I don't know. Like, are there performance implications? I can write a thing and I guess that I can bring skill to at least do a POC or something, but is it the best way to give the best user experience? I don't know. Well, anyway, that's maybe that's my spicy take that and milk is for everyone. Ooh, yes. 
Milk is for everyone, especially babies. Yes, my son I, drinks a lot of milk many times a day. <laughs> <laughs> Who, who's arguing about uh, babies drinking milk? Well, not Are babies. They, not babies, but they, there were definitely folks arguing about milk and yeah. the signals that drinking milk yeah. sends. And Did you see all the people drinking know. milk on Twitter? I, d I didn't. I, I missed that part of Twitter, okay. apparently. <laughs> all right. Well, well yeah. So, so yeah, it was uh, Primogen bits. told us about it because we saw it, but we didn't really understand what happened. And like, the thing is, there's a guy, uh, I forget his handle, and we can probably look it up later and throw it in show notes or whatever, but it's like, like milky dev or something. So prime just always called him milky. And then like one time just for fun, he just grabbed some milk and like drank it on stream or something. It just snowballed from there. Everyone would just grab a like jug of milk and drink from it. And it was this cool fun then, thing for like a week where everyone was like, ah, ha ha, I'm drinking milk or whatever. And then someone like looked up the origins behind drinking milk straight from the jug. And it's like a white supremacist thing. Of course it is. Yeah. So I it all know. got canceled <laughs> right. immediately. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah signal for white supremacy or yeah. something i was like but it's mm -hmm. milk from mm -hmm. a cow or a nut or whatever you prefer i guess yeah ba babies aren't nazis guys <laughs> yeah okay so my last question uh, your spicy takes kind of kind of touched on it but what do you both think the future of front end is i'll go first yeah, yeah you go first because you uh, just took um, like i'm gonna take your spicy take and add to it so <laughs> i did yeah I like to make your stuff interesting. That's why I'm Ooh, here. Ooh, okay. Um, that's my other spicy take. No. Um, so I like that holistically we're looking at the beginnings of a more pervasive internet and the technologies that powered that and considering them. Obviously, I've had a substantial amount of my career in this front-end, single-page application, manipulate DOM and all that, you know, offload computing power to the client, a lot of that, you know, and I spent some time doing things like Django and WordPress and all of that, where we let servers do the heavy lifting and let business logic live there and all of that. So I'm very interested that we just take a look and say, just ask questions. And I'm not saying that I think regression is the right answer. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't continue to make the front end better and better, you know, challenge each other in these ways that you guys have brought up a few different times, but also do that across the board. Like what is a web application and what's the best thing for tooling skills, my, you know, end product for the user. That's why I made that you know, kind of half joke around, we're all going to write rails in five years. We might, we might be there. Like it might be an incredible experience again. I don't know. Maybe it was never that bad. I have no idea, but yeah. Are you saying the it's coolness. not an incredible experience right now? I don't know. I have never written a <laughs> Rails app, so uh, maybe that'll change. But uh, yeah, I that for me is is a thing that I think the future could hold, and that I think we're in a better place as just a, a web community to kind of look at that holistically and say, what what can I take from before? Can we do more with it? Is there a combination of all these say uh, of all these things that starts to take us to the next level? Yeah. What, what old, what's old is new again, often comes up on our podcast. And like, if you just look at serverless, that's kind of like what's old is new again. Like we used to have big mainframes. Everybody had a terminal into the mainframe. You never, you didn't really have your own computer. It's kind of what serverless is. So like we have these cycles in dev where like what's old is new again. And just with a little like sprinkle of new technology, it seems like a whole different thing. Exactly. The pendulum yeah. continues to swing. Yeah. I'm going to, yeah. uh, piggyback off of that idea and say like 
basically Astro and writing everything HTML first is going to be the future. Like I think view transitions has showed us how much the browser can magically do for you when you just write normal HTML. So I think more and more of that is going to be built into the browser and you won't have to like, let me write this huge spot app just to have like nice, you know, animations and whatever. It'll just work in the browser. And then it's whatever dev tooling you want to just ship your normal HTML and CSS and you're done. Like, JavaScript has always been a polyfill for what browsers could give you and browsers are getting there now. So I think like we're going to need less and less JavaScript and maybe we just use Rust and we're done. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what's how the right right Rust web framework though. Well, I don't, there's been a few. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what's oh, the Django of the Rust world, you know? I guess you could say Flask too and for Python. So see there's not one answer. It depends. Wassum's definitely going to change some things. Well, what it will change, I don't think we know know quite yet. It's been very interesting to see that like the most interesting things coming out of Wassum are like not at all related to front end. Like Xtism, I find really interesting. The stuff Fermion's doing with like serverless Wassum also really interesting. And none of that's anywhere near the front end. That's yeah. true. Yeah, the front end doesn't really know that... how it's beneficial yet. Like yeah. it's been out mm. forever. Years. And we're just kind of like it's there. Like. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Was it like 2014 or something? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was when EmberConf was still well attended. So it's been a while since uh, that it came was, out. It uh, was that framework that Fred Schott used to work on. Snowpack? No, before that. Oh. I don't remember. Poly something. It's fine. We drink whiskey. <laughs> you don't have to remember things. <laughs> That's what show notes are for. I think I remember what you're talking about, though. Yeah. The one that was like at Google, right? Yeah, like the yeah. Web web components framework back in the day. Yeah, it was basically the folly. Oh, polymer. 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 Web yeah. polymer. Oh, okay. Yeah. There, there it is. Go. See. Yeah. I I'm do know what you're talking about. I just, I just didn't at the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's worth like just looking back and seeing how far we've came in the front end space in particular. There's been a lot of innovation, and most of it's been like rediscovering patterns that's happened in other areas of computation, and learning how to apply it. And for me, the future is always that. It's like we push abstractions in user land, which I think React is like an abstraction in user land that we've like applied old ideas and computation to user land and the front end world and like done this, like introduce this new paradigm. And the really interesting thing is the platform tends to just like take little tiny steps that like make something that was previously hard much easier. To me today, folks could argue that web components is a thing in that space and i'm not a huge uh, proponent of web components as as good as the idea is but like there's a lot of stuff in like the css world for example that they've introduced a lot of improvements over time that's like really making it like subgrid just css grid like that kind of stuff is really really great and you know i think that this area is where our future is it's really we continue to iterate in user space and come up with these abstractions and find models that work really well and then that pushes the platform to say, actually, we can do this and make it a little mm -hmm. bit easier for everybody. Yeah. C container queries and has like those two things, like literally browsers told us for like over a decade, like you will never have this. We cannot do this. <laughs> and now we have it. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. exciting time for CSS. Never say never. Yeah. The programming language CSS. Yeah. By the way, there's my yeah. other spicy take. <laughs> yeah, it's a programming yeah. language. It's instructions to the computer.
if if you've ever followed the account Anna Tudor, she does some crazy CSS stuff. Like to say CSS is in a programming language, you have not seen what you can actually do. It it gets intense. <laughs> yeah, I think you know CSS is one of the harder things to learn, honestly, because yeah. it like yeah, it's different so. than you can do logic in any programming language, and like you know whatever it's logic based, but CSS is like another level. Yeah. It's not all logic. It's like cascading. It's got like stuff clobbering yeah, itself the order everywhere. Of operations. Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. You guys got anything else? Any anything you want to plug? Where can people find your podcast at? Uh search DevTools FM on any platform basically or to go to <laughs> devtools.fm the URL and you can you can find us. Uh mm. if you're at all interested in developer tooling and how it changes the modern computing landscape, come check 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 us out. And plug the human aspect of that. We care a lot about people and their motivations. And we talk, you know, a lot about things like how folks who are working in open source, how they build companies and how they monetize and, you know, how they make space for themselves and take care of their mental health and everything. So the human aspect is really important to, to what we chat about, too. So, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe. Leave us some ratings and reviews. We appreciate it. And we will catch you next time.